Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can gain access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today, who probably needs no introduction, is Ezra Klein. Ezra Klein is a journalist and political writer. He co-founded Vox before leaving for the New York Times, where he's now a columnist. And he also hosts the podcast, The Ezra Klein Show, which I've been listening to for many years. Ezra and I talk about a wide range of subjects here. We talk about his background as a smart kid who got horrible grades. We talk about the over-prescription of Adderall to children. We talk about cancel culture. We talk about race-conscious public policy, and we talk about how the American political system could become healthier. So without further ado, Ezra Klein. All right, Ezra Klein, thanks so much for coming on my show. Thank you for having me. So I've been a longtime listener of the Ezra Klein show for many years, and uh, I've been reading your recent articles at the New York Times, so it's a pleasure to finally get to meet you virtually and have you on my show. Yeah, I'm glad we get a chance to do it. Yeah. So a lot of places we could start, but before we get into the topics, actually, there's one question I want to ask you about your biography. Uh, In preparation for this podcast, I learned that you had a 2.2 GPA in high school. And um, a couple months ago, I had Scott Kaufman, the psychologist on my show. And he's another one of these very smart people that did not do well in school. In fact, in his case, he, at a younger age, was categorized as learning disabled. So I'm always interested in these people that would not have seemed promising at a glance, at least by looking at the results or your grades at an early age and then end up being really smart and successful. So can you talk at all a little bit about, like, resolve that tension? What, what was going on at that point? And what about you, nevertheless made you so successful? I don't know if I can fully resolve the tension, but because uh, I think about it a, a lot myself, the central surprise of my life is I turned out to be someone with a high level of discipline and focus and work ethic. Like if you knew anything about me growing up, it's that those were the things I didn't have. And so when I look back on my schooling career, the basic understanding I have of it now is I have what might get called an attentional issue, but I think it's just like a kind of, I believe in the argument that a lot of, you know, learning disabilities, attention questions exist on a spectrum. And it's been said to me later that I have a kind of classic presentation in this way that I am hyper-focused in some ways and I have a lot of trouble learning in others. So in school specifically, I just never could listen to a teacher at the front of a room. I just still can't. And one thing that was weird about it at the time, looking back, is I didn't understand that not everyone was like this. Because think about what cultural representations of school are like, right? It's always, you know, the kid is in the desk and he or she is daydreaming. And then like the cartoon goes, right? And and, and Zach Morris and presses a pause button. And the idea that everyone is sitting there in school, not being able to listen, like completely lost in a mental fantasy land. If you are absorbing it that way, that seems like what's really going on. So if you are actually like that, I don't think you realize or I didn't realize how weird it was, right? How other people were not struggling in the same way to to listen the way I was. Conversely, I'm incredibly, incredibly good at absorbing information by reading it. And I'm very fast at absorbing information in conversation. So when my context changed later in life, right, out of rote memorization, out of, you know, listening to somebody lecture at the front of a a room, you know, for eight, nine hours a day, which is just, it was just hellish for me. And then it moved into something where the skills that got rewarded were, can you deep dive into books? Can you write about and process what you've learned in conversation and and in text? Like then the kind of attention I had that was really maladaptive for that period became adaptive. So the the way, to the extent I resolve it, 
the way I resolve it is that context is really important to the success people do or don't have. It's actually an important part of my politics too. I am extremely viscerally, emotionally acquainted with the fact that there are contexts you can put me in in which I am simply a failure. Like it just doesn't go well for me. And you will look at me and be like, that guy sucks. Like that guy just can't get it together. And then there are others where I look like a success. But it's the catalytic interaction between my set of strengths and weaknesses and then the context more than it is anything innate about me. Like I'm not, I don't feel to me like a hugely different person today, but I do have a very different context. And that context has allowed different parts of me to be emphasized. Yeah. I I think of another one, one of my best friends who has, who is dyslexic and is the type of kid that teachers just would have given up on and turns out to be, you know, one of the great piano players on the jazz scene and in the pop production scene as well. And is now, you know, the kind of kid that people say, really, he's, he's making music with that guy and that other famous guy, and he's doing that well. And he's also an intelligent person in, in, to talk to, but totally the kind of kid that just could not possibly thrive in those settings. Do you think you would have been categorized as, as an ADHD kid if you were, if you grew up more in, in today's era where we're sort of quicker to slap that label on people? I've wondered about that. I don't know is the answer, but I think that my mom is like a little on the hippie side of things. And so certainly was back then. And so I don't think would have been friendly to anybody trying to medicate me for any reason. Mm-hmm. That said, in other contexts, I'm pretty sure today I would have gotten medicated. I think that I would have been a pretty classic use case of like, this kid is smart and can't pay attention and put him on Adderall. I'll say that later in life, I never, I never took an Adderall until like, like into my thirties. Right. I never did that in college. I never, and I don't really do it now, but I, but I, but I've tried it now, like during, but I really needed to focus on something. So I was like, you should, you should give this a shot. And I took like five or 10 milligrams. The fact that we give kids 25 or 30 milligrams of that stuff is wild to me. Yeah. Like totally wild. Um, I'm not saying it doesn't help some people. I'm not saying it's not good for them. I'm not questioning exactly the medical advice. But just the idea of a nine-year-old being on a higher dose of that stuff than I've taken, like I've never taken 25 or anything like that. It just, it blows my mind a bit. But I, I do think I, I do think that would have been true for me now. I, I struggle with what to make of my own educational experience. Sometimes I've been in interviews like this on podcasts where people really want to like jam me into, and so doesn't that prove learning is broken? And I don't think there's any doubt that, you know, I went to public school uh, pretty much all my life. I don't think there's any doubt that school does not sufficiently adapt or is not really able to adapt to the ranges of learning that children have within it. Now, I wouldn't say like my problem is the one to start with, but but I I think that's true. And on the other hand, so I'd like to see see that more, more possible. I don't think it would have been crazy to put me in a room where I did more independent study or something. But on the other hand, um, you know, school has to optimize for some set of kids, particularly public school. And, you know, kids who are smart, but have trouble paying attention probably is not the, the group to optimize towards. So, so I don't know. I, I always, I have trouble knowing what to make of it. And then I had friends who went to like fancier private schools and had more, you know, interesting learning experiences, you know, and I'm not sure it's also terrible for me to have to struggle. I mean, I was a lucky, I was in a context where, you know, I had lots of books at home. I could be obsessed about my own interests. Like the internet was coming, you know, the internet was a thing as I got into college and then particularly into, sorry, as I got into high school and then particularly into college. I think I, I don't know what my life would have been like without the internet, but so I had opportunities other people don't, but, but I think it's hard to know. Like I, I think about my own son, I have a two-year-old and like what I will do or what I will think or how I will approach it if he has my struggles with learning and I'm very unresolved on it. Yeah. I just want to echo that your bewilderment that we give Adderall to to children. And I, I'm, I started doing Adderall probably when I was 22 or so in college. And I remember the very first time I did it, I did 10 milligrams. And I was probably studying for some test. And I remember thinking to myself at the peak of the experience, this is pretty much as intense as Molly, as, as MDMA. Close chemical cousin. Yeah. Without the sort of love-based feelings, just the the intensity of this is absolutely insane. And obviously that 
you get a tolerance very quickly. So people taking it every day aren't feeling that every day. But it really is something that I want to have some expert to come on this podcast to just talk about this because it's it's like a topic I've tried to raise with like five different guests now. And I I kind of think it's crazier than people give it credit for. On the other hand, I, I could be ignorant about this and it could be just for a certain person with a certain kind of brain chemistry exactly the kind of daily thing that, that you need. So, well, I have heard that, um, people I I know who know more about this than me do say that for, for people with true ADHD, it just acts on them somewhat differently. Like the feeling of it is different, Mm -hmm. but, but I will say given the pervasiveness of it, I had a bit of the same experience you did where I took, it was like, Oh, this is a drug experience. Yeah. It's not like taking an antibiotic. Mm -hmm. This is a drug experience and it feels good. Mm-hmm. And as somebody who most of the time, if I do drugs that other people say feel good, I get very, very nauseous. I mean, I also feel good, but mm-hmm. nausea is a big part of the experience for me usually. It was one of the few things I've taken. I'm like, I, I could see wanting to feel more like this all the time. Mm-hmm. And like that feeling always scares me a bit. I'm not saying I've never right. done it since. Like I, it actually has some utility for me. Um, I don't really have a, uh, I don't like have a current prescription for it or anything, but it really does help me partly back when my job involved constant meetings. And so I had to like do a lot of attentional work that was difficult for me. Uh, It it does have utility. I do see it. And on the other hand, it does scare me because as you say, it is an intensely, it it manages to merge productivity and pleasure. It's like the perfect Mm. drug for neoliberalism. Right. (laughs) Nice. Yeah, no, that's exactly how how I always felt about it. All right. So not so smooth transition. Let's, I've been reading your your article since you joined the New York Times something like what, six months ago or sooner? Or, or Sounds about right. Yeah. So I want to start out with this with this interesting article you wrote about cancel culture. This is a topic I've I've also heard you talk about on your podcast. And it's something I think about a lot. And I think we have a lot of ways in common about thinking of of cancel culture and maybe some interesting differences. So I just want to read this part of your article. You say, quote, you suggest a different way of thinking about the amorphous thing we call cancel culture and a more useful one. Cancellations defined here as actually losing your job or livelihood occur when an employee's speech infraction generates public attention that threatens an employer's profits, influence, or reputation. This isn't an issue of, quote, wokeness. As anyone who's been on the business end of a right-wing mob trying to get them or their employees fired, as you have multiple times, knows. It's driven by economics, and the key actors are social media giants and employers who really could change the decisions they make in ways that will lead to a better speech climate for us all. So I found that to be a really interesting nugget. And I think, uh, you know, I totally agree that the issue of cancellation is logically separate from the issue of a particular ideology, right? I, I would say at the moment, there are more cancellations by woke people than of woke people. But that's, and, and I, I wonder if you agree with that, but even if you do agree with that, I'd acknowledge that's, that's just a function of this particular moment in history. And as I think you acknowledge in the piece, you know, imagine if the internet existed right after 9-11, which directions the cancellations would be going. Yeah, social media. But yeah, that's something I say in the piece. You shouldn't, you shouldn't think about this kind of set of consequences for speech infractions as being, I think of it as more technological and economic, not located just in one ideology. Now, it is a case and we can talk about the reasons why. I agree, basically, there's more cancellations probably coming from the woke side than the, but you're seeing them on both and the worm can turn. So you want to have a theory of this and like an mm-hmm. approach to it that's a little outside, like just the literal year 2021, and will be robust to, 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 different, to different turns in the, the intellectual and ideological culture. Absolutely. I mean, not only can the valence of cancellations turn, it will turn. I mean, it just will turn. I don't know which direction it will turn, but it's not going to remain static forever. And I think this is one of those issues like free speech where anyone who really tries to stick to a principle throughout their lifetime is going to find themselves in the fullness of time on very different sides of, of the political spectrum because 
almost anyone, you know, the vast majority of people, certainly politicians, but even, even many people that claim to care about an issue like free speech or, or cancel culture are, are very likely to only claim that when it benefits them. Um, it's just one of those issues that perennially tends to make people hypocrites. And, um, I, I've, uh, I, I read, I remember reading the book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed by, uh, was it Jonah Goldberg? Is that not Jonah No, no, no that's John Ronson. Jonah, John, John Ronson. John Ronson. It's a great book. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, some of the cases of cancellations by right-wing people, which I think are less likely to show up in, in my Twitter feed because of who I follow are, are just galling. You know, you know, you still can't, you know, pee on an American flag or, or, you know, burn an American flag and expect to expect that expect to be given the kind of charity that many people on the right would ask for if they make an analogous infraction on, on some person's value on the left. So, um, well, forget but, but peeing I, on the American flag, like as Will Wilkinson's case showed, you can't make a joke about the January 6th insurrection, people wanting to hang Mike Pence and, and get, and get that kind of generosity. Right. So like in some ways, like it's, it's more narrow even than that. Mm-hmm. Why do you think there are more cancellations right now um, by sort of wokeness than of wokeness? Because if you take my model of it, which is it, it cancellation as a, a sort of economic phenomenon, right? Somebody losing, losing their job or losing, you know, kind of consistent economic opportunity. What's going to happen there is you need a couple of things to converge and, and you read this out. So you need a speech infraction or what is considered to be a speech infraction, whether it's intentional or not. Um, also, by the way, whether it's current or not, which is important, then you need that speech infraction to get attention, which has a lot to do with like the, the draws of the kind of social media lottery, right? So it's not like there is some cultural HR department somewhere that has to treat every incoming claim equally. Sometimes people make a mistake or said something 15 years ago that gets brought up. And sometimes it doesn't, or sometimes it doesn't catch fire. And we really don't know why, right? I see all the time somebody becomes a main character of Twitter for the day or for the week for saying something that seems no worse to me than shit people say all the time. But for whatever reason, like the right people retweeted it, the algorithm picked it up. And so then when that happens and there's a tension now, then it becomes a question for the employer. Right. And the employer doesn't want problems. The employer is not that loyal to employees. And so the, the key thing that happens next is, is it something big enough that like the social media team begins to say to the executives, hey, we got a problem brewing here. Like, let's get marketing together or whatever it is. Um, and then and then they make a decision. And the reason I think you're seeing somewhat more, although, again, I don't know the I don't have like a number on this, but, but I, I think it's a reasonable supposition. The reason you're seeing somewhat more uh, of this come from, you know, the, the quote unquote woke. I think just kind of has to do with educational polarization. And so if you think this stuff is happening at, at a high level of corporate, of corporate action, and you think that at those levels, you're going to have like a lot more sort of college educated, you know, people coming out of like urban centers, that kind of thing, which is sort of how our economy seems to be going, you know, then you're going to have a set of concerns that line up more with the concerns of, of those demographics. And you also have just like the cultural trends that we're in, you know, the sort of era of you know, Black Lives Matter and a lot of demographic change is something my book is about in part, right? We are seeing a shifting in where power resides in society and who has the power to get their political claims heard. And there is an effort to redraw boundaries about what is polite and even acceptable speech, which is something, by the way, that I'm supportive of. And so it's a convergence of all this that will we'll end up getting people, getting people in actual occupational trouble and for right now, the largest areas of convergence, I think, happen when you, you know, sort of make a racist comment, right? Corporations are much more comfortable saying they want to be anti-racist than they want to be pro-universal healthcare, you know, or that they want to be, that they have a particular view on foreign policy. Although it's interesting where you can imagine a lot of cancellations happening in the future. So if one, I think we're starting to see is China. And this, like, you can argue what its ideological valence is or isn't. But look at what is happening to, you know, athletes or actors who in some way cross China and then the way that corporate power is brought to bear on them. And like, I think that's another place where because it is a little bit more ideologically mixed, you can see the dynamic in a pure way. Like John Cena giving that groveling apology in Mandarin because he said during the um, promotional tour 
in Taiwan for Fast and Furious 9 that Taiwan is a country. Like you're, you're beginning to see the way this power is going gonna, is gonna to execute in society. Um, and so I think you see it now, but I think it'll potentially change in the future. I, I want to put in one pin here. I don't have to do it in this answer, but I want to talk a little bit about, I think, a more important or not, or at least a related distinction I make in that piece between cancel culture and cancel behavior, because that's a, that's a distinction that I think is pretty important and is very underplayed in this conversation. Can you explain that? Yeah. So because in part, my view of, to the extent cancel culture explains something that is more than cancellation, it is an overall speech climate in which people are afraid of not just losing their job, but also just becoming publicly shamed, to use the John Ronson argument, right? Or the, the John Ronson framing. Because people are nervous about becoming the main character on Twitter, because that kind of nervousness will constrain what you say, I think it's important to ask a question of simply, how do you get wildly disproportionate punishments for speech infractions in any direction? And that to me, and this is a, a cut that I haven't seen too many people make, that to me has a lot to do with the behavior of whoever it is you have offended. And one of the things that offends me in the cancel culture debate, you know, kind of quote unquote, is a lot of the people who are most ideologically anti-cancel culture constantly engage in what I think of as cancel behavior. So the thing where you pull a tweet from somebody who is much less powerful than you and you raise it up as something ridiculous or that should be mocked and you dunk on it to all of your followers. So you begin hitting that algorithmic virality thing. And sometimes you have enough power that the person gets fired. Again, Will Wilkinson at the Niskanen Center after he tweeted about um, you know, Mike Pence and the, the right is, a, is an example that's happening to somebody where it was generated by the right. But just in general, like I see among some of the like anti-cancel culture folks, like a real tendency to take this random academic out here. And they said something super woke that I would probably agree is a little bit nutty, but just like they try to get them mobbed. And I don't think they think of themselves as doing it. Like one of the things that is big on my, on my way of approaching this is that the incentives, particularly of Twitter, which is I think a locus of this, so obviously not the only one, the incentives of Twitter, you are often doing an individual act that you don't intend to, to, to lead to a collective conclusion. So everybody individually who's dunking on this person may think to themselves, like, I'm just participating in the conversation. I'm making an argument. I'm saying that something I think is bad is bad. But the place where it becomes a problem for you know, a university, for a journalistic organization, for a corporation of some other kind, for a, a public institution, is when enough people are doing it algorithmically now that it's become a kind of PR disaster. And so I have made the argument that I think particularly those of us with bigger follower counts need to like basically abide by a kind of code of social media conduct. And among other things, be unbelievably careful about jumping into an ongoing pylon of somebody. Like, look, if Donald Trump or Joe Biden or Kamala Harris or somebody, if like somebody with real power is saying something dumb, I mean, yeah, like go nuts. Like that's the point of being in politics. But if it's just some rando on the internet, like I don't, I don't buy it. And so that's like, I don't remember if I had this line in the piece, but, but something I kind of believe in and have said before is that like, don't tell me what you believe about cancel culture. Like show me how you act when you have an opportunity to be part of one of these pylons. And I will tell you what you believe about cancel culture. And I would like to see from the people who seem to say they want a more generous and decent discourse where people can make mistakes and not be overly punished for it. I would like to see a kind of generosity and restraint that models the behavior they want, not just asserts that other people should act that way, even as they don't. And like, this is something I see on the left and the right of like foes and proponents of cancel culture. Like, I think a lot of what we're dealing with here is a bad speech climate and individual behavior that then becomes algorithmically amplified is like a big part of that. And, you know, those of us who want to change it, like I have my ideas for how Twitter can change the algorithm, but since we're not going to do that tomorrow, like I also have my ideas for like how I can be a good actor as opposed to a bad one. Yeah. So a lot to agree with in there. I, I mean, the, the point about, I guess it's a mix of death by a thousand cuts and a firing squad basically. It's no individual person feels like they're doing anything that bad because I mean, in, in some very real way, they're not. It's like you could remove that tweet from history and the person would still be canceled. But you're just, but the, but the, the collective tweeting of thousands, it may, it may not even have to be thousands, 
ends up truly potentially ruining someone's career. So no individual person feels guilty like in a firing squad, but the victim feels like a life-changing event has just happened to them um, because it has. And I don't love some of the firing squad. Like there's some really intense analogies here. And usually I think it's not like we're not killing people here. Like we still have a culture where you don't get executed for for your speech, even if sometimes people do lose their jobs. So I just want to note that like, I want to, I sometimes want to take down the temperature of this conversation a little Mm -hmm. bit. Like people get, there is a, from those of us who write and talk on the internet in public, there is a particular sensitivity to the idea that we could lose our jobs or lose our reputations unfairly. And that is totally proper. Like we should be an interest group too, but people lose their jobs unfairly in this country all of the time. And, and sometimes like we do not treat like what happens to them when they get fired for trying to unionize or fired. Cause like they overslept or couldn't get there on the bus. Like, you know, these aren't firing squads. Like this is also like kind of a capitalism problem an at will employment problem. Yeah. So I, I also, really feel this thing about modeling the right thing here being much harder than people suppose. For, for instance, I remember Naomi Wolf, the, the writer, published a book something like a year ago. It might even, even be more, more than a year ago. And immediately there was some central data point in the book that was just very embarrassingly for her debunked. I don't know if you remember this. I do. I remember this. Yeah. This was kind of, this was very, this was, it was was tough to watch somebody go through this. Yeah. It was, it was, um, it's like every author's worst nightmare where you've constructed a, what is like a really interesting argument about some historical data point. And it turns out you just totally misinterpreted what a word meant and and sort of a quote unquote random person that you're on their podcast points this out to you and you have to almost be honest and disavow your central argument in real time or else contort yourself and i remember seeing a video of this and immediately i tweeted about it because it was i i don't have any perception of naomi wolf really but she's definitely not of my ideology and that probably had something to do with why i was more eager to tweet about it than i might have been but it was also just the spectacle itself. And I noticed after I tweeted, and it's, all, it's also just a very rare moment to see a big author. This is not something that happens every day or even every year. And I tweeted about it, feeling what one feels in that moment, this kind of excitement and kind of like schadenfreude, and immediately felt guilty afterwards. And I realized, why, why did I contribute to this what what is probably one of the most embarrassing moments in this woman's life like how could i possibly feel good about myself for participating in this and then i remember immediately tweeting right after that actually i feel bad about having just tweeted this and i remember some of my f- followers on twitter were trying to make me feel better like no no she deserves it i was like wait a minute no you should not be trying to make me feel better right now what i did was actually wrong i'm i'm participating in something that i think is toxic and my motivations for doing it were also wrong and um it's precisely the 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 cancellations that you and again i wasn't i wasn't directly advocating for her to be fired from whatever job she might have but it, it, most cancellations are not explicit calls for firing it's just this kind of general schadenfreude and you don't realize the role you play in it. And it's much more difficult to actually model that kind of charity that than people suppose. I think that's right. I mean, I'll, I'll say a couple of quick things on this, just for people who didn't see this. I'm going to get the details a bit wrong, but I'm going to get this broadly right. So she wrote a historical book and she was talking about a certain punishment. And the word used for this punishment implied an execution. It was like, it, the word was not beheadings, but it was something like that. And she took it literally, and the word was basically figurative. Um, people did not get killed for whatever this was when this judgment was handed down on them. So it it was a very embarrassing, this is kind of an understandable error. I wouldn't also say she got canceled. Like she made a very, very big error in a book. This got mm. publicly pointed out and she got humiliated. Mm-hmm. So I do want to, in some ways, I, I very much take your point about participating in the culture here, but I want to at least cut this a little bit from the, the, the cancellation conversation. And then I'll say the, the final thing, which is on, on what you were saying, look, man, I couldn't agree with you more. Look at my Twitter feed. You know, it is, I constantly feel and struggle with the fact that despite having a, a legitimately huge Twitter account, I have something like 2.7 million followers. I don't tweet in any way to maximize that platform. 
and I don't tweet most of the things I think. And the reason is not like I'm a great guy. The reason is sort of exactly what you're saying. My experience of being on Twitter more is that the cost of the engagement is to feel like you're becoming a worse person. Mm. And I'm lucky. I'm very lucky that in my job with, you know, I have a New York Times column and a podcast, I get to have the influence I want to have without having to be deeply in that, in that platform. But that's true for a lot of people who I think are really bad offenders on that platform. And one of the, I've been thinking about how to write a column about this without, um, but trying to do it in a fair enough way that, that balances the good and the bad of, of Twitter. But I think Twitter is bad. I think it, I think it would be better if it didn't exist on, on net, or I think I do. It has been an important platform for, you know, certainly groups that, that have not had power to get their voices heard. But only some of those groups have been good. And I don't think the kinds of conversations it fosters tend to be good ones. I don't know anybody. I don't know anybody who's a better version of themselves on that platform than they are off of it. Well, I think a lot of people are better versions of themselves in podcasting than they are out of it. Um, I actually do think that's a, a key thing. Mm-hmm. When we talk about media, like theory, like I'm a big Marshall McLuhan guy, if you've ever read him um, or, or if people do. His book, Understanding Media, it's still... It's still incredible, even though it's like a pretty weird book in a bunch of ways. But he, you know, his famous saying, the medium is a message. You know, he's got this argument and I'm just paraphrasing this from memory, but it'll be close where he says, the content of a medium is like, like the juicy bone thrown to a dog to distract them. And his argument is that we think about mediums in terms of, you know, the stories that come through them, the writing, the whatever. But his view is that the way mediums change society and change us is that they absorb us into the incentives of the medium. We become more like them. Mm. I know people, I've watched them become more like Twitter, like in their normal human interactions, because they spend all the time on the platform. Like it changes your brain, right? It changes how quickly you want feedback, right? People who once, you know, wrote, you know, a couple articles, long form articles a year and investigations and were comfortable with that, right? You become like twitchy and you need it. And I don't think it has, I think it has pushed towards a worse public sphere. Again, one of the differences I have with a lot of people in the the cancel culture debate is not that I disagree with which instances of it are bad, because often I tend to agree. I tend to be somebody who wants a lot of grace and wants a lot of generosity in the way we treat each other politically. That said, I think there's a real question of whether or not people recognize that this is not just an ideological issue, it is a technological issue. And people often mistake the two. Let me give a, a, an example that's a little bit outside this conversation, but it is related to it. Have you followed the, the thing going on at Basecamp? No. So Basecamp on? is a enterprise software company. Um, Well-known, they they very famous for the, or I think, no, I'm sorry. Their, their name is a company's 37 Signals, but, but Basecamp um, is their central product. And Basecamp is a forerunner functionally of Slack. Um, it's one of the early, very, very ubiquitous enterprise chat software things. And they end up having a bunch of internal political fights, like a fight over like a racist names list or a funny names list that was racist. And then like stuff about um, diversity, equity, and inclusion and, and other things going on in the company. And eventually the founders who have always like, they've written a lot of books about their company culture, et cetera. They go and they say, that's it. No more talking about politics at work. They announce this publicly. It's like a big, like we're making our culture better. We're not, we're not going to have these discussions. And it, like the company melts down, like if more than a third of people take a buyout, like a couple of weeks later, like it's like a total, I mean, it seems to me from the outset, like not what you want when you're running a company. And something I thought was interesting about it, watching it was, it was very clear to me, the founders of Basecamp, and then a lot of the like very senior tech people who were, you know, cheering them on the moment they did this on Twitter, didn't understand that like they had created this world, that it was in creating these enterprise chat systems where everybody's like talking to each other and putting in little like emojis and everything that you'd completely change the dynamic of power and the way public conversations were going to go. And like, you hadn't reckoned with that at all. And now you're going to try to undo it by mandate. Like you didn't, you seem to like have so little self-reflection over like what your technologies and the, the modes of interaction and engagement and communication that they foster are actually doing that you think you'll just turn it back by saying, no, stop it. <laughs> I think we need a much more technological sense of like the ways in which the the technologies we're on top of change the way we act, treat each other and think. But that's something people don't like to talk about as much because they like to think that we are in control of our technologies as opposed to 
what is exactly as true, which is to some degree, they are in control of us. Yeah. I've also noticed the phenomenon of real life conversations resembling conversations online. I think part of how that happens is because of the incentives of social media, you are usually given the worst version of the argument you disagree with, right? Mm -hmm. If you are a BLM person, you're going to get Candace Owens version of the anti BLM argument. You're not going to get John McWhorter or you're, you're much less likely to get it and vice versa. And I think part of what that does is it gives people an increased sensitivity in the bad sense to hearing disagreement in real life. Like when you hear what, what might otherwise be a really interesting, rich disagreement with somebody both of you sort of instantly get triggered because you've been fed so much low quality argumentation um, on social media and have developed instincts and tripwires based on that that wouldn't have existed had you not consumed so much low quality content that gets promoted in your newsfeed. This is something I, I really worry about. And I, I want to kind of loop back though to your point about the speech climate in general, that that conversations about cancel culture are partly conversations about a wider speech climate that many people object to. And it's one I object to as well. And I think, I, I suspect we might have an interesting disagreement here, but in any event, I recently saw circulating on my Twitter, Reddit's new hate speech policy, which explicitly protects marginalized groups, black people, Hispanics, LGBTQ, and so forth, but says we, we do not, these same protections don't apply to certain groups, such as groups that are in the majority. So, you know, read white people. And I think that kind of double standard is embedded in, in the speech climate Right now, at least in, in certain spaces, the kind of spaces I, I've operated in and that a lot of people are in corporate America, universities, Silicon Valley. And it seems to me the way you've described the speech climate in your article and as well in, in other contexts is that, you know, it, it's adjusting. People are historically marginalized group are slowly gaining power. Our demographics are changing and the speech climate reflects that. And that's no doubt true to an extent. But what worries me about what I see happening is that it seems as if there, there's no line even in principle, if you're talking about anti-white racial insults, say, and we're sort of negotiating and, and disagreeing about where the line is with people of color. It's like, you know, can you say the N-word in quotation marks? People have different opinions and reasonable people can disagree. But it seems like it seems like there may just be no line in principle. Like there's nothing bad enough to say about white people that's going to be over some line. And that, that seems to me an unsustainable double standard from the point of view of trying to live in a multiracial d democracy with a kind of modicum of respect for people's attachments to their identity. Is that something you see as well? Or do you, do you see it differently? I think it's more complicated than that. I mean, look, there's a kernel of truth certainly to what you're saying, which is I haven't seen the Reddit hate speech policy, but I don't think policies like that make a lot of sense. And even beyond that, I don't think they're politically effective, right? Like, let's say that, you know, what you care about is instrumental here. I think creating a policy structured that way is actually worse for, for what you want because you're creating that much more like white radicalization and, 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 and backlash. I don't agree that there is no like, in principle, much less de facto lines that people can't cross in terms of like, you know, anti, anti-white speech. Um, I don't know, again, the Reddit policies, but I think that like in most places, you, you wouldn't want to be running around, you know, yelling the wrong thing. I think a problem in our culture right now is that different groups have dramatically different levels of power in different spheres. And so you see advancement happening sometimes really fast and in some cases going too far in some spheres that are kind of easier to change and then like nothing happening in others. Mm. And so, you know, a good example of this is like 
sure, the Reddit hate speech policy turns out to be easy to change. Um, in part, by the way, like for, you know, my friend Matt Iglesias called the great awakening reasons, like Reddit is not like such an unbelievably diverse organization. It's also like a lot of very liberal college educated white people writing these rules, including the guy who runs it. Um, so some of what you're seeing there is a kind of, you know, transformation of political thinking, political signaling, not just among marginalized groups, but among white liberals who have become on average, like even more, you know, to the left on a bunch of these issues than non-white folks in their political coalition, if you look at polling. But at the same time, if you look at things like wealth gap, particularly like environmental justice issues, voting rights issues, the movement there is not only slower, it's oftentimes like in the wrong direction. Something I've, I've argued before is that one of the things right now that is um, deranging our politics somewhat is a tremendous imbalance between political and cultural power. Mm. And cultural power leans like 10 years or 20 years into the future of the country, right? Corporations, advertisers, um, you know, TV showmakers, et cetera, are trying to appeal to young, diverse urban audiences. Like when I used to do cable news a lot, you get the ratings at 4 p.m., and you get them for all the, the age groups, but they don't care about anything but the 18 to, I think it's a 45 age group. Like the fact that you have like a million people who are over 65 listening, it doesn't matter. Like this is years before some of this stuff is going on. Like corporations care about getting young viewers. Like that's where the money is. Um, on the flip, is that the just because they're, they're playing the long game? I think it's some of that. Um, uh, yeah. Like you catch somebody for, you know, when they're 19 as a, you know, a loyal customer of your shoe company, you got 50 years out of them. Mm-hmm. I don't really, to be honest, understand other parts of it. I mean, some of it is cultural too. If you're in an urban center and you're somebody who lives there and like, that's your social community. There's also just social pressure and creating things like other people like you are going to think are good. So geographic polarization like matters in this as well. So it's, I'd say it's probably like a mixture of, um, of actual economic incentives, but then also just other kinds of polarization operating at the same time, you know, social polarization. That said, our politics works the opposite way and is a time machine backwards, like 15, 20 years back in our, our demography. Um, so, you know, because of the way the Senate works and, and the way the state lines are drawn, because of the way the, the, the two parties have sorted geographically, because of gerrymandering, because of the Electoral College, because of turnout patterns uh, among the old versus the young, because in some states of, of voter ID and other kinds of voter suppression laws, you have an electorate that looks much less like the country and much more like it did 10, 15 years ago. And so on the one hand, the left doesn't feel like it's winning because it cares a lot about politics and economics. And there it's often not winning, certainly not winning to the extent that it's winning in votes. On the other hand, the right, which has done, you know, given how it's been performing electorally, very, very, very well politically, like has control, um, you know, on the margin of most states, uh, has 50-50 in the Senate, you know, probably will take the House back in 2022 like can now win the presidency repeatedly without winning the popular vote, um, has a Supreme Court with a 6-3 split, like et cetera, et cetera. Um, they feel like they're losing because they care a lot about the culture and they are losing in the culture, uh, part of the Christian right. And so there's a weird way in which nobody can quite decide who has power and where it's being wielded. And so people feel simultaneously like they're on the losing end of this. So you just gave a, a kind of version of, you know, well, is there anything that can't be done to white people anymore? Well, okay, like in, in, on Reddit, maybe. But on the other hand, if you're thinking about what's going to happen at the Supreme Court, it doesn't feel like that at all, right? There's, in fact, a tremendous amount of protection for the interests of white people on the Supreme Court in the Senate, where, you know, the states that are wildly overrepresented tend to be, you know, heavily, heavily white. David Leonhardt has run these numbers. And so one of the things I do think is interesting about this period is nobody can quite decide who's winning. And everybody kind of feels like they're losing. Yep. And that creates a desperation in the way they fight. So I would like to see some of these weird speech, you know, structures dialed back a little bit, but the economic redistribution dialed up, but nobody gets those choices. So they end up really pressing the advantage in the place where they have it. And then you know, being really, really pissed about the places where they're not being able to, to move forward. So I, I couldn't agree more. And in fact, the, the point you just made is one I was going to raise to you as a question. It seems like everyone feels like a victim and can plausibly point to certain areas of reality in which their side is losing to, to justify that. And I think there's another version of this, not on the topic of political parties, but on the topic of race. And so here it's, 
it's kind of analogous to the point that you just made where if you look at the legal structure of the country, if you look at, you know, just some, some recent examples, you know, Joe Biden's uh, restaurant relief plan, which included a provision to put white people at the front of the line or white owned, sorry, restaurants owned 51% by a person of color at the front of the line or, or the mayor of Oakland creating a program that gave, you know, $500 checks to poor people of color, but not poor white people, right? You can find examples of these kinds of policies. And if you look only at that as a white person, you can say, well, look how many laws there are that are putting me to the back of the line and feel a very genuine sense of victimhood as a result, particularly if you're struggling. On the other hand, outside of the legal structure, outside of the realm of public policy, the everyday social interactions on the ground, it's still the case that you are far more likely to experience prejudice as a black person, right? You know, whether this is not getting the callback on your resume submission or just the, the, an interaction with a cop that goes, even if not disastrously, disastrously just uh, a, a more snippy than it would be if, if you were white, being followed uh, in a store by a suspicious shopkeeper, having to deal with a, a partner's parents that don't like you because of your race. And, and if you look only at that, you can find very real reasons to feel a grievance against the nation in which you live. And to me, it creates an analogous situation in the sense that if you look only at part of the equation, you can feel like a victim. And, and then you get groups that feel like victims interacting with each other only in that mindset. And it makes it very difficult. People, again, as you put it, press their advantage at the side that they're right about. And it's very, I find it difficult. I find myself wanting to be, aspiring to be the type of person that can recognize legitimate grievances wherever they exist. Of course, I'm, I, no, nobody is going to be perfect at that. But is that a dynamic that you also see going on in the country or do you view it differently? No, I think that's definitely a dynamic in the country. To, to widen this out a little bit, if you like, go to my book, now out in paperback, uh, everybody should go get it, <laughs> Why We're Polarized. The thing I say at the beginning of that book is that one of the things I'm trying to explain and model is a way that policy argumentation, which is a positive sum endeavor in a, in a kind of open policy space, I can think of ways to make lots of different kinds of people better off all simultaneously. It's amazing. Like it's fucking magic become zero-sum or negative-sum by the end of political debates. And there are a lot of reasons for this, most of them not having to do with our speech climate, having to do with, you know, partisanship and the filibuster and others. But, but let me give you an example of why I think it matters that you're seeing so little action in policymaking and so little ambition in policymaking. People can't get big things through very often anymore. So you're just saying like, look, like you might be watching Joe Biden's thing come around and there's some provision for, you know, minority owned restaurants. And, and that makes you, that, that makes you feel bad. I think that would be a little ridiculous given the size of the bills and the kind of like long-term structure of our economy. But, but fair enough. Like if you're a struggling restaurateur, like I, I could see why I piss you off, but we've had a lot of like minority owned subcontracting kind of provisions in, in federal law for a long time. And they just don't do that much is like one of like in some ways, my issue with them is that they're not that effective, but there has particularly in liberal politics been forever an answer to the thing you are bringing up, which is to say, if you simultaneously believe that the structure of our economy and the wealth distribution and the income distribution and economic opportunity reflect literal centuries of explicit and also systemic racism, but you also believe that there are lots of white people or whomever that have struggled in our economy and are certainly not by any true definition of the word privileged or in a good position, then great. Let's do race-blind redistribution. So Cory Booker has a plan for, I like to call it like a universal wealth, universal wealth distribution, but, um, but he calls it baby bonds. 
and he will sell this plan to you if you talk to him as like a, as a plan to to eliminate the, the racial wealth gap. So what would happen is, you know, when you're born, if you if your family is under a certain wealth level, you get an asset, right? You get a kind of wealth bearing asset going up all the way. I think in some cases, if I'm not misremembering details, to fifty thousand dollars. But like I, who is the son of a university mathematician, do not get that. You get this, you know, blindly, whether you are white or black or Hispanic or whatever. And Booker will say like, this will close a lot of the wealth gap. And it will, like, he's right. I've like looked at his numbers on that. And on the other hand, nothing about it is explicitly based on anybody's skin color, right? It's based on, you know, what level of the the wealth strata you're born into. And so in a world where we were like policymaking, like that's a great trade. You know, if, if you're worried that there are a lot of white people who are struggling, you know, but you also recognize like, because of the history of housing discrimination and credit discrimination and educational discrimination and like literal burning of black cities, like there's going to be a particular hit on, on black wealth, like a compounding into the present. Great. Let's do baby bonds and let's do them universally uh, or in a, in a colorblind way. And, and we'll, we'll, we will be able to help the people who need to be helped. Part of the problem though, is that when policymaking begins to constrict and you can't do big creative things anymore, and you are arguing out of a place of scarcity and also arguing at a place often symbolism, like little symbolic policies, then everything becomes like, again, zero sum or sometimes actually just negative sum. I want to be in a policy conversation where I can say to, to what you're saying, yes, you have a genuine problem and so do you. And like, let's figure it out. Like, let's figure out a way we can make both of you better off at the same time. But what's often happening right now is we're not making really anybody better off. And we're just arguing about shit we saw on Twitter that is like designed to make us mad or, you know, like I'm out in SF. I know about that Oakland program. It is tiny. The fact that you know about it in Queens at all, it, it, it just, it just speaks to these dynamics. Like it's just not an important piece of policy. It's one of these like endless efforts to show on a piloted way that maybe a guaranteed income would be a good thing for the society, but it's a very, very small program. It like has like the mortgage interest deduction, which builds atop like legacy housing discrimination does not strike people as like a racialized policy, but of course in its effects very much is, but, and is just like so many orders of magnitude more expensive than that Oakland thing that you can't even believe it. But we're just not having like the big policy conversations that we could use to make a lot of people better off simultaneously. So, I mean, if you do look at the bills, things like the American Jobs Act, they're not perfectly constructed from my view, but they would do this. But things are so gummed up that it's very, very unclear whether or not they will pass. And so I tend to think some of the victimized, you know, arguing from a position of scarcity and fear dimensions of our politics actually speak to a kind of inability to engage an ambitious, positive sum policy negotiation that a different kind of political system would engender. What would that different kind of political system look like practically? I mean, at a very basic level, the way most countries work is that some party wins more votes or some coalition of parties win more votes than the other party or coalition of parties. And then the literal thing that means is they have a governing majority and then they govern until the people decide like they're bad and they should go. And I would like to see that be the way our system works, although I don't think it's going to be. So even on the margin, I would make moves towards that, like getting rid of the filibuster or getting rid of gerrymandering. I would like to see majorities um, on both sides be able to govern. Uh, I would like to see them because, again, for all the reasons that I lay out in my book, bipartisanship is not going to be a way we govern right now, not with parties this ideologically polarized. That is not how parties are even supposed to work. This always drives me crazy, this American thing that you're supposed to have bipartisanship, it would look so weird in another country. Like you have parties, they disagree, they fight it out in the election. Then you give one party a shot, they try some stuff and you decide if it worked. And then you decide if the other party should get the next shot. And we just can't do that. Instead, we have this system where people run for election, maybe get more votes. If they get more votes, maybe win. If they win, maybe don't have the power to do anything really at all. If they do have the power to do anything at all, can probably only do 20% of it. Like, and then we go back to the public and we're like, hey, what do you think of that? And they're like, think of what? Like, why didn't anything happen? <laughs> and it's a, like, you're supposed to have accountability in political systems. Like you campaign on promises, you try to pass some rough facsimile of the promises, and then you let the public judge. 
And I would like to see that. Like I would like Joe Biden ran for office. He won seven or 8 million more votes. He won the election also. I would like to see him implement his agenda for a couple of years. And then the public can decide if they liked it better or not. And then if they don't, Marco Rubio or Mike Lee or whoever it's going to be, Tim Scott, like, you know, a couple of years ago, maybe Mitt Romney, they can come in and like do the stuff they promised and the, the public can decide. Like that seems sensible to me, but, but in our system, even though it's, by the way, most states work like this, you say this to people in America, like, whoa, 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 whoa. Run politics the way states and also cities and also other countries do. And also the way we tell our like kids it works, like that would be crazy. So, and then we sit here arguing over like speech on Twitter endlessly. Like I actually, I know we're talking about some of my, my speech columns, but I've only written one speech column since being at the, 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 the times. Like I really care about what we pass and don't pass. I think that, you know, politics is not just like a way of avoiding war. It's a way of making negotiation constructive, but if it can't find an endpoint to negotiation because you've set it up so it won't, you've set it up so it would be irrational for the minority party, the opposition party to allow the majority party to govern because then like that would, might help the majority party in the next election. But you've also made it possible for the minority party to stop the majority party from governing. Like then you get a politics that becomes dysfunctional and turns in on itself because instead of the two parties being able to effectively differentiate through the outcomes of their policies, they end up differentiating through their public collisions and their branding. It's just, it's just bad. It's not a good way to run a railroad. Mm. All right. So one last question before I let you go, what advice do you have for a person who's say 18 years old and wants to become the next Ezra Klein, the next policy wonk blogger slash writer podcaster? What do you say to such a person? So the first thing I'll say is I don't believe in advice. Like literally, I have so much advice for myself now that I can't take. Like the hard part is, is always execution. What I do say, and you know, the moment in which I came into politics and into journalism, I came in this sort of like open window of blogging. And I've had a very, very weird and very privileged career that some of the doors I walked through are not open in the same way, although others hopefully are. But I think we underemphasize the value of just really knowing things cold. And, you know, for me and some of the people who came up at the same time as I did, like there's a real value in, I wasn't a journalist, nobody was going to call me back. So I really learned healthcare policy. I, I, under, I understood it. By the time I went into journalism at 21, I really understood how the American healthcare system worked. And like, I, I still believe I was basically right then after, you know, another 15 years of covering it or whatever. And specializing is important. Very, very few people are good enough writer to stand out on writing alone. If you're a good enough reporter to do it, fantastic, but very few people are that either. What you need to be able to show to an employer, to your audience, whether that is, you know, even if you're just like a Substack entrepreneur, is that there is something you are going to be able to offer that others cannot offer. And that tends to come from some kind of specialization, right? I just understand innovation policy in a way no one else does. Like, I want to read the people who can tell me, like, in a really, really substantive way right now, what to think of the bill formerly known as the Endless Frontiers Act. It's like the Innovation and Competitiveness Act or something uh, now. You know, over at Vox, for instance, Jerusalem Demsis has come in and just kick an ass because she knows so much about housing policy. And so she's offering like such a distinctive value in the marketplace. Uh, the more that everybody is like in a cacophonous conversation with each other, the harder it is to stand out. And so paradoxically, the incentives of things like Twitter, uh, et cetera, feel like they are to become more general, to just participate in whatever the algorithmic conversation of the day is, but actually the incentive is to differentiate even more. Now, the difficult thing is actually differentiating, like holding your focus, like doing that learning, but, you know, and then being able to communicate it. But, but I, I don't think that's really changed. I think that, you know, having done a lot of hiring in my time now, when somebody was able to come to, to me at Wonkblog or at Vox, or if they came to me now for, you know, for advice somehow or for, to work on my show, and they can show me that there's something they can offer that others can't, like that's fantastic. But, but if not, you know, then it's harder for, for people to stand out. All right. Well, on that note, thank you so much for coming on my show. And I hope to have you back again someday. Awesome, man. I appreciate it. If you appreciate the work I do, the best ways to support me are to subscribe directly through my website, colemanhughes.org, and to subscribe to my YouTube channel so you'll never miss my new content. As always, 
Thanks for your support.